act in like manner bad things. But now He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, or a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And He said, Then I beg you, Father, and to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Uh, Father, use it to to speak to our hearts. Use it to make us more like Christ. Uh, Lord, use it to encourage us. Lord, use it to instruct us that we might be sound in our faith. That we might be ready to give a defense for why we believe those things that we believe. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys be seated. Now, I doubt any of you in this room that you would ever do this. But have you ever been to the, been to a place, maybe in, in your job, where you were just like, man, I really don't want to go to work today. I think I'll call in and just let them know I'm sick and I'll stay home today. Y- y'all wouldn't do that, but y'all probably know people uh, that have done things like that. If there were ever a Sunday that I, could, I wanted to call in and play hooky, it would probably be today. Wesley, you come and you preach on hell. It's not an, it's not an easy thing to, to really to teach on and to preach on. I told our Sunday school class this morning, and in my 11 plus years of being a pastor, I think this is the only time I've ever devoted a full sermon to preaching on hell. It's a very difficult topic. It's, it's a difficult topic for us to understand as followers of Christ. It's a difficult, difficult topic for us to for us to defend to the to those who don't believe in it. And and honestly, it, it is the quickest doctrine that most people abandon in their faith. C.S. Lewis, the, the famous you know theologian who, who's passed away now, C.S. Lewis said if there were any doctrine that he would erase out of Christianity, it would be the doctrine of hell. Now, he's not saying that he would or that he has the right to. He's just saying it's just one of those doctrines that's very hard to defend and understand. The atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell said that he didn't see how any humane person could really believe in the doctrine of everlasting punishment. Charles Darwin, who's considered to be the, you know, the father of evolution, he pointed to hell as one of the most significant reasons that he abandoned the Christian faith. And the reality of hell, it raises all kinds of questions for people like you and me. And if I, if I could just be honest with you for a moment, I really struggle with, with this idea of hell. Because maybe you could sympathize with me. I've got people that I love with all of my heart. That if they don't surrender their life to Jesus Christ before they, before they pass away, that means that they're going to spend eternity separated from my Heavenly Father in hell. And, and so when, when I stand before you this morning to teach on hell, Understand that I do so from a humble position. I, I do so understanding that I've got people that I that I love dearly, that I believe if, if they die without Christ, they're going to spend eternity separated 
from him. And so here, here's one of the things we hear. Well, preacher, you know, that idea of hell, that's kind of just the Old Testament theology when God was angry and, and, and God was full of wrath. But now, preacher, we live in the New Testament and, and we like to focus on Jesus and this idea of love and grace. But, but there's a major flaw in your thinking if you say that. Do, do you know where we get most of our understanding from hell from? And not from the Old Testament. Not, not even just from the New Testament. Most of the church's theology about hell comes from the very lips of Jesus. And so when you say, preacher, I just want to focus on the love and grace of Jesus, you can't really do that without also emphasizing the doctrine of hell and what he taught about hell. And so in other words, if you say, I just want to focus on love and grace, you have to at the same time focus on the doctrine of hell because Jesus emphasized both on really on equal weight. If you read your New Testament and you split the, divide the teachings of heaven and hell that Jesus taught, the teachings he taught on hell outweigh the number of teachings he taught on heaven. And so if you, if you try to do away with the doctrine of hell, you, you really just have to lift out the teachings of Jesus from the scriptures. And I, I'm just being honest with you. I don't think that's what you want to do. I don't think that's what you need to do. And so what we have to do is we have to put our big boy pants on. We have to put our big boy minds on and we try to have to try to understand what is it that the scriptures teach us about hell? What is it that Jesus would teach us about hell? Now in the scriptures this morning, Jesus is telling the parable to the Pharisees. If you got your Bibles, look at Luke 16. He, he begins talking to the Pharisees in verse 14. And notice how he describes the Pharisees. Now wait a minute. Who are the Pharisees? Uh, for those of you, you know, who are, might be like second and third grade, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the teachers of the law. They're like the people who have been to college and got a great education to understand all the things about the law. These are the smart dudes. Now, notice how they're described. They are lovers of money. Okay, and so it's smart dudes and they love money. and They're ridiculing Jesus. Now, notice what Jesus says to them in verse 15. You are the people who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. And so he's talking to the Pharisees. He's getting ready, ready to tell them, this parable, and so when he gets down to verse 19 and he talks about the rich man, I think he's making a direct correlation to the Pharisees, the religious people, that, that's been ridiculing Jesus. Now notice how the rich man is described. He's described with purple and fine linen. That means he's living like a king. He's, he's living in a life of, of luxury. He has a royal feast every day. He, he feasted sumptuously every day. He had steak and prime rib and lobster and and all of those good things every single day. Now, here's something to, to observe. You have any idea what this rich man's name is? We don't. The text doesn't tell us. Tim Keller says it's a subtle clue that this man's identity was found in none other than the things that he was desiring in his life. And so you've got a rich man. It's the only identity he has in his life. He was rich. He was a lover of money. He desired money. He used people. He got his way by uh, by stepping over others. But then there's a poor man, verse 20. At his gate, this poor man, he's got a name. His name is his his name is Lazarus. And he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came. Now that was that was a no-no for, for Jews. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And then they both died. 
rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven. If you can just follow the parable there. And so here's this rich man. He's a religious man that the Pharisees would be. He ends up in hell and he calls out the father Abraham. Now he's a Jew and so the Jews believe that Abraham was the father of their religion. And I think it's also important to note that he didn't call out to God. He called out to Abraham. He was a religious man, but his religion wasn't focused on the Lord. And so here's the point. Now just catch this. The point is, here's the man. He looks really good on the outside. He lives. He's living a life of luxury. He's living a life that most of you would look at and say, Hey, hey, son. Hey, hey, daughter. You should. You should follow his example. He's got money. He's, he knows the scriptures. I mean, you should desire to be like him. He would. We would put him up on a pedestal in our church. But on the inside, he was rotten to the core. He doesn't know God. He doesn't love God. He worships money. He lives for himself. And when he dies, he ends up in hell. So here's what I want to do. Three things I want you to see this morning. I want to define hell for you, number one. I want to answer two of the most common objections about hell. And then I want to close with what God did on your behalf. So that you can escape hell. Okay? Alright, so number one. Here's my definition of hell. Very simple. Hell was ultimately life without God. Now there are a lot of pictures in the scriptures that give you ideas about hell. Most often when we think about hell, what do we think of? We oftentimes think about hell. Uh, think about fire as it relates to hell. However, fire is not the only description that Jesus gives of hell. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you hell, he, he refers to hell as utter darkness. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself a question. How can, how can there be fire and at the same time be dark? He refers to it as there was, there's a place of weeping. He refers to it a place of gnashing of teeth. And so you get this idea of just, just really, really wicked place. And oftentimes when the Bible speaks of fire as it relates to hell, it's referring to judgment, the judgment of God, not necessarily flames, of a literal fire. And so the rich man, he ends up in hell, and he's literally continuing to live a life that he lived on earth. A life with no real place for God, but a life that is way worse than what he lived here on earth. And so, two main descriptions of hell. I've already said it. Fire and hell. And so I want you to think about this with me. Some of you are firemen. You, you understand this. Fire is something that doesn't go out on its own. Unless it totally consumes that the place in which it's burning. And so, in other words, like, we don't get these here on the East Coast, but in the West Coast, they get these huge, huge forest fires. And it just literally consumes everything in its path. And the fire never gets to a point that says, you know what, I think I've burned long enough, I think I'll just go out right now. As long as there's, there, there's things that can be burned, fire will consume every single object in its path. And that's what this man's life was like. He was consumed with things. He used people, he chased after money, he was never satisfied. The great early theologian, St. Augustine, said when we look... Now catch this. Alright, y'all with me, catch this. This is good. He said, when we look into our own souls, we can see the smoke from the fires of hell burning within us. Think about it. You can see smoke from the fires of hell burning within us, and you see it in this rich man. And here's what it looks like in us. Like the rich man... Money is in our, money becomes our God and we pursue it at all costs. Do you see that within maybe within yourself, maybe within our culture? And we get jealous when we see others that are doing better than us. We use people to get things that we want. We talk about people who we think that are better than us. 
And if you leave that fire unchecked, it's going to consume you. How about this? We're not happy unless everyone likes us. And, and so we'll do stupid things to get the approval of those that we want to like us. Worse yet, we'll put down other people so that some of our friends will like us more than they like others. We do things we know we shouldn't do to promote ourselves. We're prone to addictions. Alcohol, drugs, food, pornography. Uh, we've got this hole in our hearts. And you can see the smoke rising from hell. It's burning within us. And if you don't do something about that, if the Spirit of God, if you don't answer the Spirit of God as He tries to extinguish that, eventually you're going to get exactly what you've asked for. Things like this, the smoke from the fires of hell burning inside of us, they are the result, now catch this, they are the result of God not having the right place in your life. When He's not in the right place, you feel restless and you feel unsatisfied. And here's what happens. You go through life and the Spirit of God begins to seek you out. He begins to call you to Himself, but you keep saying no. You keep saying things like this. I want to live for myself. I don't want you to be in control. I want to do what I want to do. And hell, now listen to me. Hell will be God giving you exactly what you want. Life without Him. I'll do it my way. And that's why the Bible refers to hell as utter darkness. The Bible refers to God as God is light and in Him is no darkness. And so, if God is light, then the absence of light would be darkness. And right now, now, now right now, everybody gets to experience the light of Christ. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 that his, He makes the sun rise on the wicked and the good. He sends His rain on the just and the unjust. I call it common grace. The wicked and the, and the good, both alike, the wicked and the righteous, we both get to experience the common grace of Christ. But there's coming a day that if you continue to refuse the grace of God, that you're going to end up in hell and you, there will be no common grace. You know, you notice in this text, there's no water. This rich man is begging, let Lazarus just dip his finger in water and bring it while there's no water. It's utter darkness. I think there will be sin in hell. It'll be the worst sin that you ever imagined. It'll be life completely devoid of the presence of God. And you continue to say, no, God, I would rather have it my way. You have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea what you're saying. Because one day God's going to say, okay. And you'll get to what you want, life without Him. Now, here's, here's one of the main points. and You can write this down. God doesn't send anybody to hell. And that's one of the objections. It's not the one I'm going to talk about in just a moment. But a lot of people say, I just don't see how a good God could send people to hell. He doesn't. In fact, He tried to move heaven and earth by sending His Son to die on a cross so that you wouldn't end up there. And He begs and He pleads and says, get, get your life right with me, but if, if you continue to deny Him and continue to reject Him, He's going to, at the end of the day, He's going to give you exactly what you asked for. Even in Revelation, the Bible said, or I think it's, no, it's Matthew 26, God didn't even prepare hell for you. Hell was prepared for Satan and his demons. But you will experience the consequences of that if you refuse to continue to deny who Christ is and what he's done on your behalf. C.S. Lewis 
I can quote him once again. He said, there's only two types of people in this world. Those who look up to the Father and say, Father, your will be done. Or those that the Father looks at and says, Child, your will be done. But you can't have it both ways. Either it's going to be God's way or it's going to be your way. And if you continue to refuse Him and reject Him, hell will be your life without any presence of God whatsoever. Now, two most common objections. Isn't hell unjust? Many people were repulsed by the idea of hell. We say, well, hell is too mean. It goes on for too long. We would have the rather have the view. Um, Seventh, I think Seventh-day Adventists have this view uh, that if somebody dies and they do not accept Christ as their Savior, then they're just completely annihilated. They just cease to exist. Or there are others who will say something like this. Well, I believe that we all go to heaven when we die, that God is just so loving, so gracious, and so kind that when we die, everybody will end up in heaven. Now, here's the problem. It shows just how much you have been indoctrinated by our culture. Did you know that that United States and Canada, maybe Mexico, and Western Europe were the only people who have this idea about God? Now, those that, you know, we live in this enlightened period, period or era, we think like that, but you, you, you go into different cultures and they think the exact opposite. They, they feel they had the exact opposite feelings about hell and judgment as what most people in our culture do. Uh, Mark Clark, he wrote a book recently called The Problem of God. And I want to quote something that he said in that book. He said, if you were to ask the men and women, women living in a village in Africa where recently one tribe abducted hundreds of young women from another tribe some as young as 10 years old, and forced them to be sex slaves and suicide bombers. Do you think the parents of these little girls have a problem with the idea of a place where evil men get punished for their crimes by a just judge? Do you think they object to a time when God will pronounce final and deserved judgment on these men? I can assure you they aren't losing any sleep over that fact. In fact, any concept of God without this final expression to them is less just. And he may not be worth worshiping at all. So when we suggest that everyone gets into heaven because God is so good, for many people that sounds downright awful. They hear about a God like that and they ask, why would you worship a God who fails to uphold justice by punishing evil? And he summarizes it with this. He said, if God is truly just, then there has to be a hell. Does it make us uncomfortable? Yes. But it also makes sense. But evil must be punished. Now here's objection number two. Well, isn't hell overkill? Now, isn't that isn't it isn't it isn't it too much that God would punish somebody for eternity? And they didn't really live a bad life. Most of you would say, you know what, man, those those guys and they do those things, little girls, absolutely take them to hell. Adolf Hitler, straight to hell. We, we don't have any problem pronouncing judgment on somebody like that. But you take the average Joe, he lives to be 75 years old, lives a pretty good life, but he never accepts Jesus as his Savior. And you say, that, it's just not right that God would send him to hell. For eternity, and he only lived 75 years. Well, a couple of things about that. Number one, the length of your punishment doesn't always depend upon the length of your crime. You know how long it takes to kill someone? Just like that. Yeah, if you, if you shoot them or something like that, four or five seconds. 
You know how long it will cost you in punishment for a crime that only took you four or five seconds? The rest of your life, probably. The length of your crime doesn't always determine the length of your punishment. Most, Almost always, in fact, we'll go ahead and say every time, the person you sinned against will determine the amount of severity of your punishment. For example, if me and Travis get into it and I hit Travis, odds are I won't face any consequences as far as like criminal consequences. I'll lose a great friend, but I won't go to jail or anything like that. But now if there was, a say, a, a police officer and he stopped me and I got angry at the police officer and I punched the police officer, what happens? I'm going to jail, right? Well, what happened? I, I mean, I've, I just did the same thing to Travis. Well, it depended upon the person that I'm hitting. I'm going a step further. What, what if I punched the President of the United States? Man, I might get shot, honestly, for a Secret Service agent. It depends upon the one you're sinning against. And if you really want to understand the, the severity of your consequences, understand that, man... You, you don't just sin against another human being. The, when David sinned against Bathsheba, when he repented in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Every sin that you ever commit, it's against a holy God. And if you'll receive a, a, a man a harsher punishment for, for hitting a, 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 an official like the president, can you imagine the penalty that you should receive for sinning against the king of this universe? And so it doesn't always depend upon the, the length of your crime, and it depends upon the one you sin against. But now here's the second thing. Catch this. The Bible speaks in multiple places that the experience of hell in heaven too, by the way, it's not going to be the same for every person. And, and so there's not just a one-size-fits-all judgment. It's not just everybody goes to hell and experiences the same thing. You say, well, can you back that up? Absolutely. If I, if I couldn't, I don't think I would say it. Two verses are going to be on the screen. First one. It's going to be Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. All right, go to, the, go to the Scriptures. All right, so notice what he says. He's speaking to two cities. What are you, Chorazin? What are you, Bethsaida? But I tell you, it will be what? More bearable. It's going to be, it's going to be better on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. So what's he saying? You're going to receive a harsher punishment than... Tyre and Sidon will. Now look at Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29. Go to the next one. How much what? Worst punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of His covenant. What's he saying? You've had chances over and over and over to experience the grace of Christ. You've had chances to believe in Him. But how much worse is your punishment going to be on the day of judgment than the person who's never believed? The person who's never heard. And so there's not a one-size-fits-all judgment. So it's not overkill. So we ask the question, well, how can I escape it? You know what the Sunday school answer is? Jesus. Well, in a sense, you're right. But I want you to stay with me just for a moment. There have been many, many people that's prayed a prayer to follow Jesus, but did so only out of the desire not to go to hell. There was no desire within them whatsoever to go to heaven. It's just a desire not to go to hell. And as humbly as I can, 
that's not saving faith. Just because you don't want to go to hell doesn't mean that you necessarily want to go to heaven. Doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be a follower of Christ. I heard about this this story where this at this camp, you know, much like our children went to this past summer, and that they were sitting around a campfire one night, and the leader he took an accelerant like diesel fuel, and as the fire was burning around the campfire, he threw it on the fire, and it creates this big fireball. And then the leader would say something like this: "Now, children, if you don't want to go to hell and experience something like that, then you need to pray this prayer after me." Man, as a child, who's not going to pray that prayer? Right? And that's you wonder why we've got we've why we've got teenagers that are leaving the church when they get older. We've got people that are trusting in Jesus, not because they want to go to heaven, but because they just don't want to go to hell. And at some point, you've got to understand that Jesus desires more than for you just to say a prayer. In this story, the rich man he asked the poor man. That the poor, or asked Abraham that the poor man would be allowed to go back and warn his brothers. You see it there towards the end of the chapter. And Abraham said, "You know what? Someone coming back from the dead wouldn't be enough. Wouldn't be enough to get them to follow Christ." Abraham said, "Even if they were someone who raised from the dead, or they received some great sign, they wouldn't follow." You say, "Well, you know what? Man, if I seen somebody raised from the dead, that would do it for me." No, it wouldn't. You seen some great miracle. It wouldn't make you become a follower. It might make you follow for a while, but it wouldn't change your heart. And you have to understand, that's what becoming a follower of Christ is. It's having a change of your heart. And so here's my here, here's what I would say about escaping hell. Only an experience of the love of God would change your heart to follow Jesus and escape hell. Moses and the prophets, what he said here, they tell us about the love of God. Jesus shows us the love of God as He gives His life for us on the cross. And you see, when you truly believe in hell, it changes the way you think about the love of God because you understand what Jesus went through in order for us to be saved. And so the, 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 the theology and the doctrine of hell doesn't diminish the love of God. If anything, it, it, it exemplifies, it magnifies the love of God because that's what He went through on the cross so that we could escape the horrors of hell. You know, it's almost indescribable what Christ went through on the cross on our behalf. The Bible says that He was beaten beyond recognition. And then this bloodied, disfigured remnant of a man was given a recycled, used cross that had every kind of vile bodily fluid that you could think of on it. This cross beam weighing roughly a 100 pounds with his muscles exposed, with splinters probably uh, protruding from the cross. He was given this to carry up a, up a hill to Calvary, where he would be nailed to it, where he would be lifted up in his body, where his joints would become out of place. And he would slowly suffocate to death on his own blood, his own sweat. He took the hell of sin out of our body. And in the end, He experienced the reality of hell as He was separated from the Father. Remember what He cried out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ultimate hell. You think about this with me just for a moment. 
Maybe you could just put your Bibles down, put your pens down, and just think about this. We sang a song, just the chorus of it, just a moment ago. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, if you ever catch a glimpse of what it costs him, he'll do the next part of that song and you'll, you'll bow down Say, well, Lord, here I am to worship. Here I am. Take me. Use me. You see, one of the ways you understand how much God loves us is seeing what it cost Him to save us. And see, that's why I think Jesus spoke more about hell than He did about heaven. Because He wanted us to see what He was going to endure on the cross on our behalf. Someone said this, and I think it's worth mentioning as I close. Jesus didn't die to take us out of hell. Jesus died to take hell out of us. You see, right now, you've got these flames, these flickers, this, where you can smell the smoke of your sin in your life. And this morning, the Spirit of God is beckoning and He's pleading and He's urging that you would repent of that. That you'd get your life right with the one who gave His life on your behalf. And right now, you're resisting. No, I don't want to. No, no. I don't want to follow you. No, no. I'd rather do it my way. No, no, it's about me. And you're hanging on. And eventually... God's going to say, okay, have it your way. And I pray that today you wouldn't let it get that far. That today you would come to Jesus. That you would surrender everything that you have to Him. Not because you want to miss hell. Not because you're scared of what's going to happen when you die. But simply because you understand the love of God for you. Simply because you're overwhelmed that God would love you so much that He would send your son to experience hell so that you don't have to. See, if you come because you're scared of hell, sooner or later you're going to fizzle out. But if you come because, man, you are overwhelmed with the love of God, then God's going to do great and mighty things in your life. He'll change you from the inside out. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come this morning, Father, I pray for heart transformation for people in this room this morning. Lord, hell is a reality. It's, Lord, we, Lord, we read about it over and over in Your Word. And my Lord, although we would want to deny it, it's real. Lord, You have made a way of escape. Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave on our behalf. 
And Lord, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice that Lord, today, Lord, if they've never responded to the love of Christ, that Lord, today they would give their life to Him. Father, I pray that You would move in our midst. Lord, I pray that You would do great and mighty things as we close today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As you stand to sing, uh, three things I thought of as a way of response this morning. Number one, if you've never really trusted in Christ, and you've, you've never really experienced the love of Christ, would you come? Maybe, maybe, maybe you're like me. Remember my testimony, eight years old, I, I said a prayer I never meant. Maybe you're like the kids at the campfire. You, you prayed a prayer to receive Christ, not because you wanted to go to heaven, but because you just didn't want to go to hell. And today, your heart's just been gripped by the love of Christ. And you, and you resonate, man, with the, that, this, this, this smoldering flame within you that sin is still desiring to have you. And today, would you come? Just simply say, preacher, today I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to give everything I have to Him. Way number one. Secondly, maybe just by understanding the reality of hell, that today you will just make a greater commitment that you'll pray more for those who don't know Jesus. Maybe that you'll make a greater commitment that today you'll be more faithful in your sharing of your faith. Because you understand that people who die without Jesus, people who continue to say no to Jesus, will experience life without Him. So however the Father leads, you respond in obedience this morning.